All right, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading out of Acts 17, 16 through 34, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible. <clears throat> While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this blabber trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took to him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You were saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, <clears throat> as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and humans can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any, any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in early times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? It's good to see you. Glad that you're here. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here at the church and uh, just excited that we're in church together today. We have been taking the fall for the last really three months, and we have been reading and studying the stories of the first Christians. And by first Christians, we actually mean, literally mean, the, the very first people in history who were identified and, and associated with the, the Christian faith. And the reason that we've taken all this time to do that is because many of us in the room are Christians. Some of you are not, but many of us in the room are Christians. And as we read their stories, and even beyond their stories, as we look at what happened historically with these 120 first Christians, it's remarkable. You know, and historians, whether they're Christian historians or not, 
uh, all agree that what happened, how 120 turned into a few thousand and a few hundred thousand, a few million, two and a half billion now today, is truly remarkable that it, 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 it spread like wildfire. It overtook the Roman Empire, you know, and, and it has been tried all over the world to be squashed out and countries have tried to make it illegal and people have tried to kill Christians and, and, and all kinds of attempts to try to, to get rid of this, this religion, this faith, but it just keeps spreading and spreading and impacting and changing people's lives. And so we have tried to figure out What is it that they had that maybe we don't have? What did they believe that maybe we don't believe? What were they doing that maybe we don't do? Because we would love to experience God in the way that they did, see some of the things in our life the way that they saw them. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, or maybe you were a Christian at one time and it was very underwhelming for you. It didn't live up to, you know, what maybe you thought it would or what somebody said that it should. But as you read these stories of these first Christians, we see a living, real, powerful faith. Let me tell you one other thing that's cool about this, because this is my last week. We're not talking about this anymore necessarily. So um, just one other thing that I think is so cool about this is that, you know, the guy who wrote the book of Acts in the New Testament was not a pastor. He was not a religious uh, leader. He was a doctor. His name was Luke, and he wrote... Um, he wrote the, these stories to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus was not a believer. He was a skeptic. Uh, he did not believe in Christianity. But Luke believed, Luke the doctor, who had firsthand account of these stories, believed that if Theophilus, the non-believer, heard these stories, knew these people, their names and where they were and what was happening, that it was so compelling that maybe Theophilus would become a believer And, you know, I kind of believe that too, that for anybody who's cynical or skeptical, I believe that if you ever truly meet people who really believe it, people whose lives have been really changed, like we're reading about in this story, I believe it does something to you and to your soul. I believe that. And so hopefully what you've been seeing uh, is is that when God really moves and touches a group of people, that remarkable things can happen. And even non-Christian historians, even scholars and non-Christian who are non-Christians look back and say that it really is remarkable and can identify five characteristics or five actions or qualities of these first Christians in the first few centuries, what they did that caused it to spread. There were obviously a lot of things, but, but pretty universally agreed upon that there were five characteristics of the first Christians. And we've talked about these a little bit, but they, let me just give them to you again. Prayer, they were praying people. Service, they served people. That before Christianity came along, there was no value on human life. Uh, babies were discarded. Women had no rights. And uh, there, you know, there was no value on human life. And then Christians come along and they're serving people and they're valuing human life and they're giving dignity and they're building hospitals and, and, and. And so prayer and service and then suffering, the way that they suffered, that Christians suffered in such a way that they had hope, even in the most discouraging, despairing situations, that even in instances where they were being killed and murdered, the, the, the people who were doing it to them were moved because all the Christians had to do was, you know, denounce their faith. But even in 
the way that they were suffering, there was something about them that was different. And then the, the fourth one that almost all the historians would agree upon is persuasion. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. And then the last one is generosity, that they were radically generous um, sharing. They lived in this community, just kind of sharing everything that they had. So prayer, service, uh, uh, suffering, persuasion, and generosity. And we've decided that, that these are going to be the values of our church, that these are the kinds of people that we want to be. We want to be praying people and serving people and suffer differently. And uh, we, we've been, instead of persuasion, we've been saying influence. We want to have influence and then generosity. We want to be really um, generous people. And so this week, we're finishing up with uh, one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. And I say all the time, preachers say that a lot, and it's true. It's like you go back and you start putting together this message, you're like, man, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And the reason that this is one of my favorites in Acts 17 is because Paul, the Apostle Paul that we read about, is going to go toe-to-toe with the leading scholars and philosophers of his day. He's gonna go toe-to-toe with them. And this is what historians mean by persuasion. That it wasn't just that the the Christians were praying, and they were, and it wasn't just that they were serving or suffering differently, because they were, giving generously, they were. But they also had a better argument. They also had a faith and a belief system that could not only hold up, but it was more logical and sound and sturdy than the religions and the superstitions of their day. And this is actually still true today, uh, you know, as a matter of fact. And I think this is a crucial point. I want you to hear me. And this won't mean a lot to everybody, but it will mean a lot to a few people in the room today. It means a lot to me. I would put myself in, in your camp. But I want you to know that in order to be a Christian, you do not have to turn off your brain. Please hear that. And in order to be a Christian, you do not have to turn off your brain. That that Christianity is logical. It, it, It has sound reasoning to it. And yes, it is supernatural. It is definitely supernatural. And yes, it takes some level of faith but it does not take blind faith. And please hear that. And again, some of you guys are like, that's fine. I'm not worried about any of that. But there are some of us in the room, me included, that maybe one of the turnoffs to Christianity for you is that you've got questions, you've got thoughts, you've got ideas, you've got doubts. You, and, and maybe you've brought those up before. Maybe you haven't, but maybe you've brought them up before to a pastor or a leader or a small group, and you were proud of your question, you know, because if you're a good question asker, you're proud of your questions, you know, and, and you brought it up and somebody said, well, I don't know, you just got to have faith. And you're like, I, I, there's got to be a better answer than that. And there usually is, by the way. And so, Yes, you have to have faith, but you don't have to have blind faith. And the Christian faith is supernatural, but it's also logical and practical, and it holds up to scrutiny and cynics and skeptics. And hear me, no one has ever disproved Christianity. No one's ever disproved Christianity. And no matter who you are, what belief system you choose to follow, or even if you think you don't have a belief system or, uh, or anything like that, every religion or faith or worldview requires some level of faith. 
No one can prove their beliefs beyond all doubt. And it's important that you know that. Even science, by the way. Because when it comes to the great questions of life, science can provide facts and data, but it can't give you meaning. So science can explain how you exist, but it cannot explain why you exist. You with me on that? So the question is, if all belief systems require some level of faith, even non-belief systems, so even atheistic ideas require some level of faith. So if all belief systems require some level of faith and you can't prove any of them beyond all doubt, how do you know which one is true? That's a, that's a valid question. And the answer, by the way, is you can't. You can't. There's no belief system or religious system that you can prove beyond all doubt. Not totally anyway. So what you have to do and what we kind of see in our story today is you have to take the other belief systems and other religious ideas and other superstitions and you have to take those and you have to compare them and you have to hold them up. And this is what Paul's doing in Athens. And we don't just say, well, Christianity's right and I just know it. And they say, well, how do you know? I just know it. Well, why do you believe the Bible? I just do. Like, that's fine. And I'm not saying you have to have more answers for you than that, but we also can have better answers than that. And so Paul finds himself in Athens, which is, by the way, something else that I love about the Bible, that we actually have something here historically that connects it to history. He's in Athens. He's dealing with competing ideas. And Athens, as you probably know, was considered the center of culture and education. Think Socrates, think Aristotle, and here is the Apostle Paul. So if you've ever taken a high school or college class and they elevated Aristotle or Socrates or whatever, we have a story today, a real time in history where the Apostle Paul was competing against those ideas. Not those people, but those ideas. And... Um, in our story, I don't know if you noticed it, but in our story, it tells us what the two dominant ideas of the time were. It says that Paul began to talk to them and there were Stoics there and there were Epicureans there. I don't know if you saw that when he was reading it. But, and so what, what is that talking about? Well, let me just get in the weeds. Let me give you just a history lesson for just a second, then we'll come out of the weeds and then we'll get to something practical, okay? So let me just give you a little history lesson for a second. So two dominant ideas at the time. The first one would be Epicureanism, okay? Epicureans, this is a massive oversimplification. If you're here with a philosophy degree, you're gonna hate what I'm about to say, but I'm just gonna give you just a very oversimplification. Epicureans believed in general that there was no afterlife. So when you die, you die, which means that there aren't really any eternal consequences for what you do, which means that you should maximize life, pleasure, benefits, don't worry about anything afterwards. Maximize pleasure in life now. That was a basic Epicurean idea. And then Stoicism, which has made a big comeback lately, maybe you're familiar with Ryan Holiday, author, one of my favorite authors, writes about modern Stoicism. Stoicism was kind of the opposite of that. Stoicism said that every human being kind of has these base human instincts and they're not, it's not really the best part of ourselves. And so, what we need to do is prioritize personal discipline and self-control. Virtue is very important. Have conviction, be self-sufficient, rise above your natural instincts, be a better man, be a better woman, okay? So these are the two dominant ideas that Paul is dealing with in Athens. He's dealing with one group of people who say, nothing happens after you die, eat, drink, be merry, go for it, live it up. And then the other group says, you can be more, do more, be more virtuous, be a better person, have conviction, 
and, 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 and elevate yourself while you are here. These are the two big ideas. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that those are probably the two, two of the biggest philosophies and ideas of our time. I think that would be fair to say. Wouldn't you say that, that, that two of the dominant themes of our society and culture is do what makes you happy, live it up, don't let anybody tell you, don't worry about the consequences of what you wanna do, you do you and just maximize life for you. I think that would be a dominant you know, philosophy. And then I think the other one is kind of that hustle, grind, build your life, you can be more, don't settle, believe in yourself, rise above it all, right? And depending on your algorithm, those are the videos you're seeing all the time, you know? And I think that's probably relevant to where we are. And so here the Apostle Paul steps up and he is now competing against these two ideas with the smartest most cynical, most skeptical people maybe in the world at this time. And I want you to know what Paul doesn't do. I want you to notice what he doesn't do. I love this. He doesn't riot. He doesn't protest. He doesn't boycott. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't attack them. Instead, he wants to dialogue with them. He wants to die. And what does he say? Well, verse 22, I'm gonna read it to you again. It says, so Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. This is really interesting because he's finding some common ground. And in essence, what Paul's saying to them and what he would say to you and I and what he would say to our culture is, everyone is religious, Everyone is religious, to which maybe some of you would be like, whoa, whoa, don't label me religious. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. Everyone is religious. Everyone worships something. Everyone has something that they believe gives their life meaning, something that they have to have to live. Everyone prioritizes their time and money and energy towards something they believe is most important. And so it says that Paul, verse 16, says that Paul walked around Athens and he saw all of the idols and it broke his heart. Now, what he was seeing was statues and carvings and actual physical images that people would come to and they would make sacrifices to in order to receive the benefits of whatever it is that that would be. So it would be like an idol of fertility, a God of fertility or a God of beauty or a God of strength or war or a God of fortune or whatever it is. And so what would happen is they would come and they would make sacrifices to these statues or these figurines. And as they make sacrifices, then they would receive the benefit of whatever it is. Now, you and I most likely probably do not have statues and figurines in our houses, but that does not mean that we are any less religious or worship idols any less than those people did. Because you and I, every day of our lives, identify things that we believe that we need and we sacrifice for them, right? Isn't that what we do? And so don't just think of statues or idols as statues, but think of them as, as anything that you believe you have to have to, for life to have meaning, to be significant, and to be secure. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three filters, three things, three questions, three, 
three ways that you can begin to identify maybe some idols in your life. And by the way, we all have them. So this is not like those people. This is us. But I want to give you three, three ways that you can begin to identify potentially things that you are very religious about other than God, things that you worship other than God, which, by the way, is why in the Ten Commandments, the first one says, don't have any other gods, to which maybe like me, you've read that and thought, well, like, that's kind of like an easy one because like, I only know one God. So, But what they're saying is like you're going to be tempted throughout your entire life to find other things to worship and be religiously devoted to that you think will give your life the purpose, meaning, and security that you need other than God. You still with me on that? Okay, so how do we identify idols? Let me give you three ways. Number one, first question is this, is what do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? What, are the, what, what do you imagine what do you enjoy imagining? What's the best thing that could ever happen to you? I want you to think about that. Is it winning the lottery? Is it, is it finding a spouse? Is it getting um, the promotion at work? Is it um, moving into a certain neighborhood? Is it losing 60 pounds? Is it having a certain number of followers or being famous? Is it revenge. When you have nothing you have to think about, what do you think about? I want you to think about that for a second. Because that kind of lets you know what, that begins to, to identify for you what are the things that, that your soul believes potentially would give you real deep satisfaction. But let me give you a second one. What are your nightmares what are your nightmares? In other words, what is the worst thing that could ever happen to you? What, what do you fear the most? What would make life not worth living? Would it be if your body was deformed? Would it be if you lost your children? Would it be if you had to file bankruptcy? Would it be if you lost physical ability to succeed at things? Would it be a demotion? Would it be public embarrassment or humiliation? What's the worst thing that could happen? What, what could be taken from you that would make life, you'd say, I wouldn't even wanna live if that happened to me. Well, what's happening there is you're beginning to identify what gives your life meaning and security. Deep, deep meaning and security. Let me give you one more. What causes uncontrollable emotions in your life? What makes you disproportionately anxious or angry or guilty when it happens? Is it when someone criticizes you? Is it, is it when someone disrespects you? Is it when someone doesn't notice you? Is it when something is taken from you? Is it watching the news? Is it watching the stock market? What, what causes disproportionate emotions for you? 
So if you take those three questions, what's the best thing that could happen to you? What are you daydreaming about? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? What do you fear the most? And what causes uncontrollable emotions for you? If you really take some time and think about those things, you're going to begin to identify potentially some idols in your life, which sounds pretty intimidating and it can be intimidating, but it just means that you're a human being like everyone else in the Bible and throughout Christians throughout history, that we begin to believe certain lies and certain things that yes, we worship God, but we also worship success, respect, wealth, family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so Paul is making the point to them and he's making the point to you and I, listen, do not kid yourself, everybody's religious. Everybody would be willing to sacrifice everything to get what they think they have to have the most, right? And so he is building this case and building this argument today. He's, he's making it to them and he's making it to you and I, but then in essence, and I'm paraphrasing, he tells the difference between all of these idols that they have and Christianity. He, he's, he, he tells the Christian message and he begins to say who God is and he says certain things in there about how God created and he says how God meets every need and he says how God is close to you and he's searching for you and he says all of these things. But if we wanted to sum it all up, here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that the way that you believe that religion works, the way that you believe that, that worship in God works is that you go and you sacrifice so that you can receive. But in Christianity, it was God who did the sacrificing. It was God who sacrificed so that you could receive. And every person in here could tell their story about how they gave everything they had in a certain decade or when they were in college or to a relationship and you sacrificed and you sacrificed and you gave and you gave and you sacrificed your kids and you sacrificed your marriage and you sacrificed your health and you sacrificed your time and you sacrificed and sacrificed and you finally got what you swore you had to have. Did it work? And I don't mean did you get it because you got it. But when you got it, did it give you the peace you thought you would have? Did it make you feel secure like you thought it would? Did it take all of your anxiety away? Or instead, when you got all the money, did you lay in bed and wonder if you would lose it? Or when you got the relationship, did you wonder if they would leave you? Or when you got the job, did you wonder if other people were trying to come after your job? Or when you started getting the compliments about your physical appearance, did you worry about not having your physical appearance anymore? Or when you became popular, did you worry that maybe you wouldn't be popular anymore? See, what happens is everything but God never satisfies. And so it causes us to have to constantly take more and more and more of ourself to get more and more of we think what we have to have. But Christianity is the only religion, it's the only place where you go where God says, you don't have to sacrifice for me because I sacrificed for you. And so if you come to me and you put your faith in me, now you don't have to be rich, but you don't have to be afraid to be rich. You don't have to be 
single, but you don't have to be afraid to be single. You don't have to be beautiful, but you don't have to be afraid to be beautiful. You don't have to have it, but you don't have to be afraid of losing it. All of your identity and all of your security can be 100% found in me. This is what Paul said when he said to the Stoics and the Epicureans and to the Louisvillians. He meets every need. He meets every need. And this is why, this is why Jesus told his disciples, when you get together as often as possible, I want you to take some bread and I want you to take some juice, wine, whatever. We can debate that later. And I want you to remember to them, he was saying, what I'm about to do, what I'm about to do. Because see, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they would take animals and sometimes children and their skin and their harvest, and they would come and they would put it on the altar and they would sacrifice it, hoping somehow that the gods would look kindly on them. But God took his son, Jesus Christ, and he laid him on the altar. And so he said, Monday, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, you're going to be so tempted every time you see another commercial or scroll on your timeline or go to the shopping mall or see your friend succeed or, 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 or. You're going to be so tempted to forget that I've already done everything that you need in order to feel secure, in order to feel seen and known and loved. I've already done it. You just have to receive it and believe in it from me. And so each week we come together we're going to do that now in just a moment. But I want to just say one more thing to you, and, and then we'll, we'll end this. But as we've taken these last 13 weeks, you know, it's funny, Andrea and I, one of the things that, that I hope makes me a better preacher is that I'm married to a woman who is the exact opposite of me. I want to figure out how to be quiet and alone, and she wants to figure out how to have, like, Christian salsa dancing. I want to be a monk, and she wants to, I don't know, not be a monk. And so, and what's interesting is she said to me earlier, she said to me, she said, you know, she's like, I mean, I, I think you're spending maybe too much time, like, on the whole, like, doubts, questions, philosophy thing. You know, I don't know that, like, a lot of people are struggling with that. And I said, well, I hear you, and you're right, and definitely not the majority, but I do. And I think there's a lot of us, and here's my point in saying all of that is that I love that we get to end this, this series. And I know, it's, you know we've, we've been in this for a while, but I love we get to end this series. We started the series with like this powerful fire from heaven salsa dancing party thing. <laughs> and I think for so many of you in the room, like that really hit a nerve. You need that. You want more of that. You need more of the power of God. And I'm not saying I don't, because I do. But I think there's others of us in the room that, like, we feel more comfortable in Athens. You know, we, we feel more comfortable um, talking it out, thinking it out. And I just love that over this extended period of time, I love that there's place for all of us. I love that we can all come to the table. The thinkers can come to the table. The feelers can come to the table. The cynics can come to the table. The believers can come to the table, the old, the young, the black, the white, the wealthy, the poor, we all get to come.
And if we had only done a few weeks on Acts and we had only hung out, you know, in the electrifying stuff, then it may have been tempting to think that like, you know what, there's not a place for me there if I don't have a certain chutzpah. But I love that we get all the way to this place and we, there's room for all of us. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and maybe just maybe the reason you've never been a Christian is because you've always thought maybe you were too smart for it, too good for it. Or maybe you were around Christians who you felt were beneath you in some way. I don't know what God has in store for your life. And you may leave here like some of the guys in this story laughing in contempt and thinking that we're the dumbest people ever. And that's okay. But I would just like to invite you just to come back. Just come hang out with us. There's a space here for you. If you're here and you're a Christian and you've got big doubts and you're thinking about walking away, just come back. Just come back. You can come to the table. You can come to the family. If you've been on the fence for a really long time, I just want to encourage you, come back. If you're not sure, just come back. Just come back. Because I'm not bothered or insecure about your doubts or your questions. Because here's what I know. It holds up. It holds up.